came to read all of those Christmassy type passages that we read every Christmas. And uh, what I've been trying to do is focus on what God says to us about Jesus coming and try to look at those passages in a, in a slightly different way and, and, and see what God is saying rather than just read them as the, the passages that we read every Christmas without really thinking about what they mean. So I want to read from Luke chapter 2 and I'm going to start reading in verse 22. Each year, we thank you for them. We thank you for what they tell us about uh, you and about why you came. And we thank you, Lord, for the way they encourage us as we look to you. So I pray that that would happen today, Lord, as we look into this passage, that you would speak to us and that you'd encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Not sure if you're aware of it or not, but back in April of 2011, Prince Charles set an amazing record, a world record, I think. He became the longest-serving heir apparent to the British throne. He took over from his great-great-grandfather, Edward VII, who had waited, I think, about 60 years to uh, eventually take over the throne from his mother, I think, Queen Victoria. Charles, at the time, uh, became the oldest, uh, longest-serving heir apparent. Now Charles is into his 70s, 72, I think, definitely the longest-serving heir apparent, and the British throne goes back more than a 1,000 years. So I think it's a record that poor Charles is going to quite a while. But, you know, there's another little interesting fact about that that I read through the week, and that is that Charles at 72 is the longest serving heir apparent. His son, Prince William, at 38, is the longest serving heir apparent to an heir apparent. You know where this is going, don't you? Prince George, William's son at 6 or 7 or whatever, however old he is at the moment, is the longest serving heir apparent to an heir apparent to an heir apparent. How's that for a useless bit of information? But however you want to look at that, it's a lot of waiting. You can imagine Charles waiting at the bit wanting his turn at being king, and you can imagine in the back of his mind him thinking, well, if it doesn't hurry up and happen soon, my reign as king is going to be extremely short. He's waited so long. And we can see that Prince William is going to have to wait a long time as well, and Prince George is going to have to wait who knows how long before he gets his opportunity to reign as king. There's a lot of waiting going on. And as I think about waiting, I realize that life is filled with waiting. We're always waiting for something. If you were watching the news, I think, last week, you might have seen uh, images from uh, the airports around the country as borders were opened up and people were finally able to travel and families were able to 
reunite again after such a long time of being separated. There was scenes of joy, scenes, uh, there were tears, lots of tears shed. There was great enjoyment of being able to be together after all this waiting. There's a lot of waiting that goes on through life. You know, it was said by someone that life is filled with waiting stages. A child, for example, has to wait till he's big enough before he can get a bicycle. A young man has to wait till he's old enough before he can drive a car. The medical student has to wait for the degree to come through before they can become a doctor. A young couple has to wait until they've saved up enough to buy that first house. Life is with waiting stages. And as someone said, the art of waiting doesn't happen at once. There are stages through life that we seem to be waiting, if not for one thing, then for another. You know, for a lot of people, it's waiting until the baby is born, or waiting until the school holidays. For me, for many years, it was waiting until I'd finished my study. When I was farming, it was waiting until after harvest. There were all sorts of things that we were waiting for. It might be that you're waiting for a job. It could be on a more personal level, that you're waiting perhaps for a sign of acceptance from someone or a sign of friendship. Perhaps you're waiting for a word of encouragement or perhaps a word of forgiveness or perhaps even a word of apology. Perhaps you're waiting for some of those things, waiting for something. We're always waiting for something. So the question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, as I said a moment ago, we've been looking at these passages mostly in the Gospels, but a couple of weeks ago we looked at a passage in Isaiah to see what God says about Christmas. And uh, we've read this passage this time, not uh, a passage from before Jesus was born, but rather after Jesus was born, but God still tells us something about Christmas in this passage. Now, just to refresh, in Matthew chapter 1, we read there that Jesus coming into the world was going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It was going to be a miraculous event, the work of the Holy Spirit, and God said that Jesus would come and take away or save his people from their sins. In uh, Luke chapter 1, when the angel visited Mary, we uh, saw there that Jesus would be called the Son of God. He would also be known as the Son of Man, but specifically he would be called the Son of God. And that his kingdom, his uh, reign would never end. He'd be king forever. We saw in Isaiah a few weeks ago that Jesus is the light of salvation that God was bringing into the darkness of the world at the time, and that his kingdom would be characterized by peace, by joy, and by freedom. So what's he saying in this passage as we look at what God says about Christmas from Luke chapter 2? Well, there's a couple of things I want to draw out as quickly as I can. There's something about Jesus, obviously. 
But there's also something about waiting that I want to look at as well. So, what is it about Jesus that uh, God is trying to say to us through this passage? Well, this is one of those passages that has a lot of tradition tied up with it. You see, what Mary and Joseph were doing for Jesus was exactly what they were supposed to be doing for Jesus. There's a, uh, with a lot of uh, law, if you like, tradition around the birth of a child, and one of those traditions was that every firstborn male had to be presented to the Lord. And God said that every firstborn male would be uh, would belong to the Lord, would be holy to the Lord, and had to be presented to the Lord. You might remember the story of Samuel, the prophet in the Old Testament, when he was born, his mother, before he was born, his mother said, God, if you'll give me a child, I'll dedicate him to you all the days of his life. And that's what happened when Samuel was born. She took him to the temple as soon as he was weaned, dedicated him to the Lord, and he stayed with the Lord around the temple for the rest of his life. And that led to this presenting the firstborn male to the Lord. So that's what Mary and Joseph were doing. That's why they'd come to, to the temple in Jerusalem. The other thing that they were doing when they were there is that the law said that whenever a woman had given birth, there was a period of purification that she had to go through. For a boy, it was 40 days. For a girl, it was even longer. I'm not sure why. 60 days, I think, for a girl. But for a boy... The period of purification was 40 days. So what we read in this passage is that Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what they should be doing according to tradition and law. They're presenting Jesus to the Lord as their firstborn male and they're also completing this 40 days of purification that Mary had to go through. It's very ordinary what they were doing. Every good Jew would have done this present their firstborn male to the Lord and go through the period of purification. It was very ordinary. You need to notice that. There's nothing unusual about what Mary and Joseph are doing. It's the very thing they ought to have been doing, presenting Jesus before the Lord. But then along comes Simeon. And we don't know anything about Simeon except what we read in this passage. He's kind of an enigma. We don't know anything more about him. I tried to find out from uh, textbooks and commentaries, but no one knows anything. The only thing we know about Simeon is what we read this morning. But you get the idea that he might have been a familiar character around the temple. He could even have been a priest going about his daily duties at the temple. He could even have been the priest that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to to go through the act of presenting Jesus to the Lord. We don't know that. That's speculation. But you get the idea that Simeon is perhaps a familiar face around the temple and and he's well known around the temple and, well, that's about all we know about him. Except that we're told that he's righteous and devout. And we also are told that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now that's an important statement because in those days the Holy Spirit was not 
filling all of the believers like he does today. There were only a select few people that were anointed by the Holy Spirit in those old covenant days, those Old Testament days, and we're told that Simeon had the Holy Spirit upon him, and he was prompted by the Spirit to be in the temple and to do and say the things that he did and said. So that tells us something about Simeon. This man, perhaps an older man, we're not sure, this man is intimate with the Lord. He's a believer. He's faithful to the Lord. You get the idea that this devout, righteous man is going through the same uh, devout, righteous practices that he's probably gone through all his life. Spends a lot of time around the temple doing the things that the Lord would have him do. And we can say that's probably true because the Bible tells us the Spirit was upon him. Well, Simeon comes, and Simeon says a couple of things, and some of those things that he says are kind of opposite. And we don't handle opposites very well, but let's take a look and see what Simeon says. The first thing he says in verse 30, he says, My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, or the Lord's salvation. Notice he doesn't say, My eyes have seen the one who will bring the Lord's salvation. He doesn't say that. He says, my eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. Do you remember a few weeks back, I think it was when we read from Matthew chapter 1, we focused a little bit on Jesus' name. We're told a couple of times that the angel told first Joseph and then Mary that they were to name the child Jesus very specific, and it's probably against what most parents prefer to do. You like to pick the name of your own child. You don't want anyone else to tell you what to call your child, but God was very specific. Name the child Jesus, and we saw that the name Jesus means God is salvation. It doesn't mean God will bring salvation, although we know that he will. It means God is salvation. So when Simeon sees the baby Jesus and he says, I have seen the Lord's salvation, he's not meaning I have seen the one who will bring salvation. What he means is I am looking at salvation right here in this baby. Jesus is salvation. Yes, he brings us salvation, but Jesus is salvation. Well, that's the first thing that Simeon tells us about Jesus. He is salvation. Here's the second thing that Simeon tells us that's quite contradictory to how we often think about Jesus. And it comes in Simeon's words to Mary. In uh, verses 34 and 35, Simeon says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Think of Jesus. We tend to think only of good news, joy, happiness, life. 
But from what Simeon has said, it's not just life and joy and happiness. It's opposition as well. It's people against as well. Now, we, we struggle to comprehend things that seem to be opposite to us. Like, for example, Jesus, the Son of God, He is fully God. And Jesus, the Son of Man, He is fully man. Those two things are opposite. Completely opposite. There are times when me as a man have been as opposite to God as you can imagine someone could be. So for us to think of God and man being together the same in one person, it's kind of hard for us to grasp. So for us to also think of Jesus as salvation, but also the destruction of many, is also difficult to understand. And that's what Simeon was saying. The rising and falling of many, and for a sign to be opposed. Now, you go and stand on the street corner and tell everybody that God is the only way to heaven and uh, that is the only means of salvation and see what happens. There will be opposition, for sure. You watch TV and watch when a group of religious leaders are brought together and and it seems to be only the Christian leaders who are opposed the way they are opposed. For some reason, Jesus is both a sign to bring life and hope, but also a sign to be opposed. Right through history, I think uh, the sign of Jesus has been both sign of hope, but sign of opposition as well. The Germans during the Second World War and in the lead-up to the Second World War saw a great opportunity in the churches in Germany to use them as a means of controlling the population. So they changed things like Christmas and Easter and changed the, the meaning behind them. They selected passages that the priests could uh, could only use from the Bible. There were other passages that were banned and there were certain theologies and doctrines that the priests were not allowed to ban. So uh, the authorities took the Bible and rearranged it to suit their purpose as a way of bringing fear into the population so they could control them because they knew that if people followed Jesus, then the authorities would have no control. So... Jesus, salvation. But Jesus also assigned to be opposed. Kind of opposites. Well, it's a little bit about Jesus. What about the waiting? I want to actually emphasize this a little bit. We know this passage is about Jesus. But I want to draw out and focus a little bit on this idea of waiting. Don't we hate to wait? We want everything now. We're in an instant generation where we expect it all now, if it's too slow, we don't want it. Time is money and all of that kind of thing. We want it now, and if it doesn't come now, then it's too late. It's gone. Well, a little bit of background. As I said a moment ago, we know nothing about Simeon or Anna, except what we've read in these verses. But we do know that they were both waiting tells us that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and it tells us that Anna was uh, waiting 
for the redemption of Israel, waiting for the same thing. You see, there was this image, this understanding that one day God was going to come, intervene in history, all of their enemies would be wiped out, he would come bringing salvation, uh, the nation would be restored and raised up again, and, and uh, God would rule and reign forever. That's what they were waiting for. They were both waiting for the same thing. But apart from the very little that we know about both Simeon and Anna, we do know that, as we said a moment ago, Simeon was a righteous and devout man and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Anna, we're told, is a prophetess. We also know she's very old. But she's a prophetess. And there's only two or three or a small handful of women throughout the whole Bible who are called prophetess. So obviously she's a significant older woman. And we're told that she was night and day in the temple in worship, prayer and fasting. Now that doesn't literally mean that she never ever left the temple. It doesn't mean that at all. But it just means that her whole focus in life was in the worship around the temple. And she was always there. If you were there, chances are you're going to see Anna worshipping, praying, fasting as she waited for the redemption of Israel. So these two older people, all we know about them is they're righteous and devout, waiting for God to redeem his people. Waiting. Waiting. Do you know that if you read through the Old Testament, and it even says it in the New Testament, generations like dozens or hundreds of generations of Jewish ancestors to Simeon and Anna had also waited and they died waiting, not seeing any of these promises come to pass. But Simeon had the promise from God that he would see before he died. Now suppose you got a promise like that. How would you wait? Suppose you'd been told you're going to see the the Lord's answer before you die. How are you going to wait? And how are you going to recognize it when it comes? You know, God answers our prayers all the time and fulfills his promise all the time. But a lot of the time we miss it because we don't recognize it. But both Simeon and Anna recognize what they've been waiting for. So how did they wait? Well, We're told that Simeon was devout and righteous and that the Spirit was on him. It tells us something about his relationship with the Lord. If he was a priest, we don't know if he was, but if he was a priest, it sounds like he was going about his priestly duties day in, day out, day in, day out, faithfully waiting for that time when God would reveal the promise that he'd made so long ago. Anna, again, don't know anything other than what we've read, but what we know of her is she is faithfully in and around the temple, worshipping, praying, fasting, waiting. Tells us something about her relationship with the Lord as well. You see, 
both of them waiting for the same thing, and both of them going about their normal business. You see, when we're called to wait, we're called to wait in the ordinary ways of life. God doesn't expect us to find a deserted island somewhere or, you know, a mountain to sit on or anything like that. He expects us to wait in the ordinary phases of life. So going about your business, about your work, but all the time focused on your relationship with him. Anna, for example, the fact that she spent all of her time around the temple worshipping, praying and fasting shows that she was fully devoted to her relationship with God. The fact that Simeon had the Holy Spirit upon him, that he was known to be righteous and devout, shows that he spent all of his time in the Lord's presence, waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promise. So, waiting, how are we going to wait? Simeon, through faithful service to his Lord, waited. Anna, waited in constant devotion to the Lord. Faithful service, constant devotion to the Lord. Now we know that Anna was well into her 80s. That's a long time to wait. We don't know about Simeon. He might have been older or younger. We don't know. But it's a long time to wait. Faithfully going about your service and constantly devoting yourself to your relationship with God. That's how they waited. And God answered the promise and they recognized God's answer to the promise in the ordinary stages of life, going about their usual business. But they recognized God's answer because Simeon waited faithfully serving in his role. Anna waiting patiently devoted to God. We get so impatient, frustrated, anxious when the answer doesn't come immediately. And so we stop our waiting and go on to other things. Faithful service in the ordinary aspects of our life. Dedicated daily devotion to the Lord over decades of life. It's not only how they waited, but that's how they recognized. Like I said a moment ago, we get the answers, but so often we don't recognize them because God in His faithfulness gives us the answers, but we don't recognize because often we get impatient and we stop waiting in faithful service or constant devotion to the Lord. But not these two waiters. They saw, they recognized because of how they waited. So, what does all that mean for you and for me? Well, we're still going to have to wait for Christmas. It's still a few weeks away yet, which is a good thing because I'm not ready for it. 
But what does it mean for us? How should we wait? And more importantly than how should we wait, how are we going to recognize God's answers when they come? Well, here's a, just a few things very quickly that might be helpful. First of all, don't give up on trusting God's promises. Both Anna, the old woman, and Simeon, potentially an old man, live their lives faithfully going about their service, faithfully devoting themselves to God, and trusted, obviously, trusted God to fulfill his promises. The fact that Simeon would speak out the promise that God had given to him when he saw Jesus, now you can let me go in peace because I've seen the fulfillment of your promises, means that he kept trusting, so keep trusting. Don't give up on trusting. Keep trusting. Don't be impatient. Don't give up trusting the promises that God has given you. Second thing, don't give up on the habit of faithful service. Like I said, God fulfills his promise in the ordinary stuff of life if we continue to faithfully serve. However, we're called to faithfully serve. Staying in God's presence is made up of lots and lots of small activities. You don't imagine that it was just a, like a blanket that Anna threw over herself to be in God's presence. No, it was worshipping, whatever that looked like for Anna. It was praying, it was fasting. Was probably a lots of other activities as well, but that's how she kept herself in God's presence. Lots and lots of small activities. Don't give up on that faithful habit of service. Don't give up on perseverance. Don't we hate to persevere? Don't we just get impatient and if it's not happening immediately? Don't give up on perseverance. Anna, at least, Simeon is as well, but Anna at least is a picture of perseverance. 84 years waiting. It's a lot of perseverance. Continually, faithfully, stay in God's presence. You don't see it yet, that's okay. Stay in God's presence, faithfully persevere. Keep trusting, keep serving, persevere. And as we wait, we're going to recognize when God answers his promises. We're going to recognize when he fulfills those promises to us. So, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for not only the words in this passage about Jesus, he is salvation, but also thank you for these two people that are a picture to us of waiting. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be good waiters, to never give up trusting you, to never give up faithfully serving you, to never give up persevering even when the end is not in sight. Help us, Lord, to be good waiters so that we recognize your answer when it comes. Father, we thank you for what you say about Christmas through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.